0: Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts.
1: Well, thank you and good afternoon. Welcome to this final day of October. Hard to believe we've got two months to go and the year that was 2023 will be in the history books and of course a lot of history in the making certainly in this year and one of the big stories that we're going to talk about tonight um, relates to what's been going on in the Middle East and let me start by putting the, the sort of admission up front that I recognize there are degrees to which this is a highly controversial topic. It has been wrought with fear, anger, frustration, consternation from all sides, I believe. And while there might perhaps be hours of radio discussion pertaining to who did what, when, who's at fault, um, and taking up of sides, today we thought we'd take a decidedly different approach. And try to understand a little bit of the history. Perhaps a glimpse into the history will help us better understand how we got where we're at today. And maybe, maybe even give some clues to the future. I understand that there are multiple layers of spiritual dynamics here in biblical prophecy. Um, We're going to spend perhaps less time focusing on that because I think a lot of folks have got a pretty good understanding. But what perhaps you don't know is the history of the region and who came first and how many people. People have claims to the territory we know as Gaza or the Palestinian territory, and how legitimate are those claims. To join us in an attempt to try to better understand from a historical perspective the background of the region. We have with us Bob Zadek. Bob, of course, is a lawyer, a CPA, best selling author. He hosted the longest running libertarian talk show in America, and I consider him to be, as many do, a leading expert on the US Constitution and its history. And Today, the broader degree of his passion for history brings us to this somewhat controversial topic. And Bob, as always, great to have you join us on the program. Uh, This is a region that is not only wrought with controversy, as I have suggested in my opening remarks, but, but maybe as we peel back some of the layers of history, we'll get a better insight as to why this is such a conflicted region, all with an eye towards hopefully fostering some better Better understanding. And I guess I'm going to start with a question that I should typically save for the end of the show, but instead we'll do things backwards and I'll ask it at the start. And that is, based on your following of what has been unfolding in that part of the world for all these years, is this something that we just have to perhaps come to the admission that it will always be with us, the controversy over this territory?
2: Well, I'll give you a lawyer-like answer. Before I start, Greg, thank you so much for inviting me to be your guest once again. It's always the highlight of my year when I get to be on your show, so thank you so much. But now to your question. Um, is this something we have to get used to? Well, it depends, a lawyer-like answer. What does it depend upon? It depends upon whether or not there is out there Leaders who can lead the people in the right direction. Most people do not have the time or the inclination to do a deep dive into any subject, and who can blame them? We have lives to lead, and we can't study foreign affairs, domestic affairs, the weather, science, Uh, we can't study that stuff. We depend upon others Uh, to make decisions on behalf of the governments under which we live. So that makes sense, who has the time? That's their job, not ours. But so if there are leaders who will be able to lead most people to earn the trust of the people who empower them, so that they lead us in the right direction, then the answer is a resounding no. We are not doomed. But if we follow the wrong leaders or if there are no correct leaders to help us understand, we're kinda of doomed. And we are gonna undertake, Craig, you and I, this evening, a about as emotional and uh, about as an emotional subject as there could possibly be today in world affairs. And I will make a promise on behalf of myself. Everything I say will be factual almost to the point of being boring. It's going to be factual. And maybe if people have the facts, because nobody would be expected to have all these facts. It's just not fair to respect people. Maybe that'll give them a bit of understanding so they can take the facts, this passionately presented, and then apply them to what they see in their, whatever media they subscribe to, and then process what they see and reach the right conclusion. And we're gonna, we'll start with, as you and I have this conversation, Start with a the premise. There is lots of anger out there. And what I think the audience will find, but that's up to them, is that even if the ang- the anger, which is understandable, may be directed to the wrong source, people can be angry, number one, but... The focus of their anger is in the wrong direction, but the audience will reach their own decision as you and I have our conversation. The the, the main point, the sort of the core of the anger is what the uh, Hamas led terrorists did in Israel, and which has been in the news, no sense repeating it, it There's no reason to. And with the havoc and the murder um, and the crimes against humanity, they did an issue. They did something. That's kind of undisputed, that's factual, we're not gonna discuss it. And they were angry. And they were angry at the squalor in which they lived and the lack of hope they had about their lives. Probably those feelings are at the very least understandable but they were angry at the Israelis, the humans who live in the state of Israel. Now the question is, that I hope the audience will be able to answer for themselves, is was that anger, even, even if valid, and forget about how they carried it out, was that anger directed in the right direction? or not the audience our audience our friends out there will decide. let's remember that part of the the buzzwords that are being used by those who are angry at Israel are angry at Israel for being a colonial state. now the state of Israel only started existing in 1948 and the jews the jews did not necessarily create the state of israel and that's the first misunderstanding we the story starts the modern story in 1920 after world war one and the league of nations was formed a predecessor to the United Nations. It was formed in the image of President Woodrow Wilson. They formed the League of of Nations. First time that happened. And the League of Nations, kind of like a UN, had the power among those members to create mandates, which is where the League of Nations assigned certain territories to member nations. And Britain and France were assigned through what was called a mandate, a League of Nations mandate. They were assigned what is now Israel. They were said, okay, uh, and between Britain and France, France got certain parts of the Middle East and England got other parts, including the state of Israel. So England was given responsibility for administering this line drawn on a map, now called Israel. And it was called at that time mandatory Palestine. So number one, Palestine, now Israel, was not created by the Jews. It was created by the League of Nations, including the Middle Eastern countries themselves who were members of of Israel. So whatever you say about israel it was it was created to harm arabs and hurt and benefit jews neither one kind of had a seat at the table it was done by the league of nations which was supposed to end all possibility of wars and british and the brits ran ran Palestine because the league of nations says that's their job so they ran it well within the state of israel The Jews and the Arabs weren't getting along. They were unhappy together in the state of Israel. In 1947, the Brits said, you know, this is too much. It's like being a parent in a dysfunctional family. We don't want to do it anymore. And the Brits said, we're out of here. So they just left. They packed up and left. And now here are the Jews and the Arabs not getting along, so there's conflict. And the Arabs were fighting with the Jews, and they were having a fight. And it turns out the Jews won these battles. And the Jews, who won the battle for this place on the planet that the Brits used to have, declared the state of Israel. And they declared the state, and they were the state of Israel. That's how Israel was declared, in a vacuum. And they, and they operated as the state of Israel. And uh, sooner or later, there was, uh, right after Israel was formed, there was the first Arab-Israeli war. And there was a war. And the war was fought for a while, and there was a ceasefire. And the Arab countries and Israel sat around the table and sorted things out. And they made a treaty. And in the treaty, Jordan got the West Bank, Egypt got Gaza, Syria went along for the ride, Syria signed on, and the Arabs agreed. Everybody agreed. And there you have the modern map, except for this. 1967.
1: Now, I have a question I'm going to pose, Bob, and, and, and maybe you can address this when we come back after the break. As I'm getting the the eye from my engineer here, um, there is in the midst of this, from the the creation of this region, we'll call it, because it's not was not yet officially a state, at least not in 1917. Uh, out of that came something called the Balfour Agreement or the Balfour Declaration that apparently was something put forward by Great Britain at the time when she was controlling or about to take over control of the region, uh, I have heard it said that that allegedly had made certain overtures that eventually there would be a, a Zionist nation created out of that. Um, this, of course, all predating World War II, the motivation, of course, post-World War II, with a great sense of urgency based on what had transpired in Europe and Eastern Europe at the hands of Nazi Germany, uh, kind of up the ante significantly, But but I'm curious in terms of, I have heard it said, that there are a series of broken promises here, going back to well, perhaps even predating uh, the, the League of Nations declaration. But this Balfour agreement, I'm, I'm curious to get your take on. We'll come back to more of our conversation. If you join us a bit late, we are tackling the history of the state of Israel and looking at sort of the 30,000-foot-high broader question that I understand has political implications, spiritual implications, historical implications, on the list goes, in terms of who ultimately has a right to the land. Land. There are parts of the world that have been contested and have been fought over for centuries, millennia, probably none as much as this one. Our conversation with best selling author Bob Zadek continues. More information about Bob's work online at bobzadek.com. That's B O B Z A D E K.com. A time back out, back with more insights as our conversation with Bob Zadek continues.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We can talk
1: about the history of a so-called disputed territory, there is perhaps few others that rival that of the nation of Israel. That spot of land has gone from being conquered and later under control until the next guy came along by the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians. Roman Empire had control for a while, then eventually uh, there was consolidation under Islamic control during Arab conquest. And, uh, you know, as oftentimes, as we're discussing this broader issue of what's transpiring today, one of the first victims of war, as it's often said, is the truth. And so we're trying to set at least the record straight in terms of the history of that part of the world, who has occupied it, when, and for what reasons. Bob Zadig is offering some insights. Of course, Bob, uniquely qualified to do so. He's a lawyer, CPA, best-selling author, and one of the leading experts on the U.S. Constitution and its history, and a passionate follower of history, helping shed some light into this particular subject matter. Um, Bob, can, speaking of shedding light, can you shed some light in terms of the Balfour agreement that was executed by um, British, the, the British government, and and what exactly, if anything, was that meant to accomplish?
2: I'm going to make a minor correction. You said Balfour agreement. And I'm making a correction, not to be technical, but it was not an agreement. It was nothing other than a statement of principle. A, d- a, declaration. Yeah. Balfour, uh, a declaration, yeah. A declaration. It was Lord Balfour, uh, a British uh, member of the British government, uh, wrote a made a public promise to the Rothschilds, which were, of course, very powerful uh, Jewish banking family. And he issued a declaration um, in 19, for, officially in 1914, and he did so, like everything that happens in the world, with a political purpose. The Brits were about to take on the Ottoman Empire, a very powerful Arab, Turkish uh, league of countries and kingdoms. And the Brits wanted support from the Jews for it, it's about to take down the Ottoman Empire. So it issued a declaration, really done to get worldwide Jewish support for the British soon-to-be-started war against the Ottoman Empire, and the Balfour Declaration expressed, it was just a declaration, had no binding effect, it just was kind of a promise that uh, the Brits, in speaking about Palestine, expressed the hope that one day there would be a Jewish homeland, and they, the Balfour Declaration went on to say they hoped that this Jewish homeland would be very protective of the rights of others, non-Jews, within the state of Israel. And it was aspirational. It had no binding effect. It, It wasn't going to be enforced. It was a statement of principle. And that was the principle that guided the Brits, where they were given the mandate to run this area of the world, as I said, after World War One, So the Balfour Declaration was nothing other than a statement of principle done for the political purpose of gaining worldwide support in the Brits' soon-to-be war against the Ottoman Empire. Now, the point, I, I want to pause here, because if we stop here, we then realize that after the Brits' vacated Palestine in 1947, and Israel, and now the the Jews and the Arabs are in a, a place that's not even a country, and with no administrator, the Brits and the British police force and the British army are gone. And now it's like home alone. There's nobody home, there's no parents home, so there's a fight. And in the resulting fight, Uh, The fight ended up resulting in a ceasefire, never a truce, a ceasefire in which the Arab countries brokered a deal. And as I said, Jordan got the West Bank, Egypt got Gaza, the Jews got the state of Israel, and that was all done by treaty. Not by conquest, but by treaty, where all the Arab, where the... Arab neighbors signed on now I want to stop here because if we stop here we realize that in 1948 the guy was cast we have Gaza which is a place but not really a government it's under the administration of Egypt so whatever happens in Gaza and this is one of the premises I want to present Perhaps the Egyptians are to be blamed because they had Gaza at one time uh, and Jordan got the West Bank and they were in charge of the West Bank. And that's the way it was until the, the 1967 war when the, the Arabs, the Arab na- uh, neighbors of the state of Israel... Started attacking Israel, and we had the 67 war. As a result of the 67 war, the Israelis prevailed. Now, there was no winner or loser, but that war ended with Israel still existing and kind of winning if you keep track of such things. As a result of that, Israel then assumed uh, occupied. Uh, After 67, they occupied Gaza. They won it, if you will, from Egypt. We may remember, if we're old enough, those wars in the Sinai Desert. Israel won Gaza in a war, and they won the West Bank. And that's how Israel got control of Gaza and the West Bank. They did so as a result of winning a war. And Israel occupied Gaza from 1967 to 1993 when there was another war, and uh, the Six-Day War. And then after the Six-Day War, Israel, and the Oslo Accords were signed, Israel turned over Gaza to the Palestinian Authority. It said, as a result of these Oslo Accords, a negotiated treaty, it said, okay, as to Gaza, which we had control of, we relinquished control to the Palestinian Authority. And the Palestinian Authority had control of Gaza from 1994 on. And from 1994 to 1996, the uh, the Palestinians were in control, um, and they had limited self-government. And until 2007, when through an election there were questions about the authenticity, but it was an election, Hamas won in yeah, on the ballot box, and they replaced the Palestinian Authority as the governmental unit. And so, from 2007. To and including October 31st, 2023, Hamas has been in charge. Now, that's the story. Now, if you take that story, where in the story did Israel do the bad acts that many in the West and around the world are accused of doing? They never... Gained any land by conquest except when they were defending themselves in the uh, 1967 war. So, if you assume the Palestinians living in Gaza are living under subpar conditions, horrible conditions, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to paper them over. Let's assume the conditions are bad. The question, the question I ask the audience to ask themselves who caused it and if you want to look around who was the bad guy was the bad guy the Arab nations who gave uh, England and France uh, control over the region was it the Palestinians who governed for 20 years was it Hamas who governed from 2007? If you start with the premise that they live in subpar conditions, ask yourself, who's at fault? And that is the real question that the world has to ask. And the, the subtext of that question is, is it appropriate to take out your anger, assuming the anger, to be understandable. Let's start with that. The anger is understandable. Who wants to live that way? If you start with the assumption the anger is understandable, to whom or against whom should the anger be addressed? And I have just saying objective history, as I can best recall it, facts, facts, facts. And from those facts, try to find who the the big Satan is in all of this. Who caused the mess? And was it how the Gaza Strip was governed since the Arabs took over control, which was 1994? Of course, the Arabs have been in control of Gaza since 1994. That's 30 years. So where does responsibility lie? And Craig, that's the conversation That's really helpful because it's objective. And it gives us a chance to concede a lot of people are suffering a whole lot. And to sort it out, why are they suffering? And if you need to find a villain or a cause, let's figure out the cause and fix the cause. And that's what I hope our friends out there will do once they appreciate what really happened in the modern history of Gaza.
1: There's a, there's a curious question behind all of this that we'll get to after the break, and that is this. Uh, You've posed a very legitimate question that I don't know is an easy answer, uh, ready to give in relationship to uh, why the the direct sense of frustration and angst and anger, given the fact that it has been under Palestinian rule since ninety four, as you point out. Uh, so are they blaming Israel? Suggesting, and I've heard this said, uh, Palestinians have remarked that. They look at the abundance in Israel and say, why them, why not us? and express a sense of frustration and anger but that seems to stem out of more an issue of jealousy than anything else um, can Israel all of a sudden grow an orange <laughs> a, a grove of oranges in the middle of the desert yeah they've got a history of succeeding in doing things just like that so is this a matter of a sense that they do better than we do in the same territory and there's something um, unfair about that and if so that's being borne out in this frustration is it something deeper than that what about the broader question related to statehood so if israel has been declared an officially recognized state by most of the world at least since 1948 is at the real core of this frustration the lack of official statehood and if it's something as simple as that Why not grant it to them? That's a bigger question we're going to ponder when we come back after a brief time out. If you've just dialed in, Bob Zadek with us today. Bob, of course, is a lawyer, a CPA, best-selling author for many, many years. He hosted the longest-running libertarian talk show in the nation. He's with us tonight as we're folding back the details of the history of the state of Israel And hoping to at least shed a little bit of light to get us to think more about who ultimately has a right to the land. And how do we go about brokering a deal when two different people groups are laying claim to the exact same piece of territory? This almost seems to be a um, Solomon-like demand to cut the baby in half. Hopefully we won't have to go that far, though. We'll take a time out back to more of our discussion. Bob Zadek with us online at BobZadek.com, B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Unpacking a complicated history issue today with Bob Zadek look at the question of not just the current state of Israel, but who ultimately has a right to the land. As we talk about the history, it brings forward, as you pointed out, Bob, the reality that in 1994, uh, what used to be considered the, the Palestinian Authority has taken over now control and governance of Palestine. And yet, obviously, there continues to be consternation between residents of Gaza and the balance of Israel. I would wonder if any of this argument relates to, well, gee, if Israel is officially recognized, at least by most of the world, um, as being a sovereign state, um, what about Gaza? What about Palestine? And um, how do we go about accomplishing that? Would that, in your opinion, settle this debate if, in fact, the residents of Gaza were granted official statehood?
2: Well, the... It probably would. Uh, That's a really hard issue because if the governing principle of Gaza is to eliminate Israel's existence, how could they ever conceive they exist only to be an army base? They're just a military base on which to launch attacks. That's not a country. That's a military base. And the question is, you can't be fighting over the land of of Israel. Well, you are. But what makes no sense to me is if you start with Israel in 1947, it was the same topography as Gaza. It was just a desert. There was nothing going on there very much there was no economic base the economic base was built from scratch which tells you that there's no reason why gaza as a country maybe together with the west bank could not become an economic economically strong country after all israel has shown it can be done and as i would observe from time to time on my show, focusing on the economic success of Hong Kong, of Singapore, indeed even of Japan, that what you learn, and Japan has no natural resources, but they became a world power. What's the secret? Well, I observed that the most powerful natural resource a country can have is free markets. It's not a theory. Hong Kong has showed it. All Hong Kong has was economic freedom. And look what happened. Singapore, all it had was economic... It was a barren island. It had economic freedom, powerhouse. Look at the United Arab Emirates in Qatar. Now, Qatar has oil, um, but other they built economic zones within the uh, an Arab... Uh, Government, where the governing law is the Sharia, uh, within that, they built economic free zones, which are governed by the British common law system, with British-style courts, property rights and the like, and these economic zones. Had economic freedom, they prospered. So you don't need that much. You don't need anything in the ground anymore. Those days are kinda over if you have freedom, it's the classic, if you build it, they will come. Of course, capital seeks freedom. They, they seek free trade and property rights. So there's nothing preventing Gaza from prospering, and they can't hide behind the excuse. Well, we don't have any oil, we don't have any precious metals, we, we only have barren land, not even that good for farming. Israel has shown that's not an excuse. So, therefore, what's wrong? Well, what's missing? The freedom you need to grow a country from scratch. That's all that's missing. So, while if you grant the residents of Gaza, if you grant to them they have the right to be angry, you then ask the second question, at what? at what are you angry, will concede the anger, but are you directing the anger at the wrong source? And the ugly part of this whole conversation is, we know that on the planet Earth, there resides and always will reside within some anti-Semitism. There's all kinds of biases, against all kinds of people including the Jews not not only the Jews but including the Jews and when events happen as happened in public in, in, in Israel and Gaza now that becomes an excuse so all of a sudden as there are bad acts happening around the world those who are carrying around anti-Semitism but suppressing it because there's no way to express it now when those people who have hatred in their hearts see what's going on they now are given in their minds permission not to suppress it but to express it so it becomes an excuse it becomes if you will amongst that crowd socially acceptable to now express your hatred so there's not a rise in anti-Semitism, in my opinion. The amount of anti-Semitism is kind of unchanged. I say that without statistics, is what I say. Although the amount of anti-Semitism is unchanged from generation to generation, the environment which p- makes p- expressing it okay, Changes And that's what we are experiencing
1: now. So it's just kind of, it's always been residing below the surface. It's just been able to kind of bubble up. And, and you know, it's interesting, and I want to point this out to listeners. Uh, least you think that Bob and I kind of compared notes ahead of time. We had zero discussion in advance of today's conversation. But I find it interesting that a uh, part of what you said has gone to the heart of my observation. And I've heard this expressed before, that sense of frustration uh, to the point of Anger and jealousy over the success of Israel, Gaza's neighbor. It has a healthy tourism industry. It has uh, certainly a, a healthy manufacturing industry. Uh, they do a lot of exportation of goods. They have a healthy local economy. Then you look at the miracle of an orange grove, as I related to earlier cropping up in the middle of the desert on some kibbutz and say how is this even possible uh, they, they have managed to harvest uh, technology and and modern uh, architectural uh, architectural <laughs> agricultural uh, policies and procedures that have allowed them to be successful successful to that degree if you see your neighbor doing well and you're not it is I think largely um, a component of human frailty and our flawed character to look at what the neighbor has and say, well, if he's got it and I don't, there must be something wrong with him. And that really defies, I think, appropriate logic to say, okay, what can I learn from my neighbor? What can my neighbor teach me so that I too can better myself? But unfortunately, it's sometimes easier to scapegoat than to do real hard work. Bob Zadek with us tonight. We're taking a look at the history of the state of Israel. And our conversation continues in a moment. Information, by the way, available about Bob online. Uh, resources related to podcasts, books, and the like by going to BobZadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. A time out back with more as Lifeline continues.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We return
1: to our discussion with best-selling author Bob Zadek. We've been talking about the history of the state of Israel and attempting to shed some light on not just the current conflict, but maybe a deeper understanding as to what kind of potential resolution to this conflict could lie in the future. We know that there have been repeated attempts to try and broker the peace, broker a deal, come to some kind of uh, terms that everybody would feel comfortable with. Um, More often than not, that has ended in utter failure or dismissiveness by one side or perhaps even the other. Then there have been occasions when there's been an attempt at embracing agreements and then at some point something seems to cause a trigger and once again Chaos in the region erupts. But I think Bob has given us a a very unique insight into what may be really at the core of a lot of this. Yes, there are centuries, dare I say millennia, of deep-seated anti-Semitism and hatred um, that is not going to be erased anytime soon. It's certainly not going to be changed, perhaps, by uh, um, granting uh, Gaza or or Palestine its own statehood. Um, Ultimately, perhaps, the broader issue of economic benefits, and an opportunity to improve one's situation in life will maybe speak the loudest. But toward that degree, creating an environment where that's possible is really the key here. And as I suggested in my remarks just before the break, Bob, um, Israel has demonstrated in the, in the time since 1948 that in a part of the world that there weren't many natural resources, they have become extremely successful. But they've also fostered a democratic environment where entrepreneurship uh, was encouraged and ultimately was rewarded, many of those elements seem to be missing in Gaza.
2: Well, it sure it sure seems that way. We know for sure that the squalor under which, as I am learning, under which the citizens, the residents—I don't know the citizens, but the residents of Gaza—are forced to live is offensive and it makes me feel just great pathos for them to have to live that way but if you as I said earlier if you start with that conceding that they are living in a way with a devoid of any hope they are living in a way that nobody should have to live start there and then say why 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 are they living that way and fix the core problem. and after all one can say hamas has been in control since 2007. total control the israelis have not been in control at all and the hamas was voted in by the palestinians now is it fair to or the, the gazans is it fair to say Hey, Gaza residents, it's your fault because you voted for them. Well, that's kind of absurd because we know from what we have read that the election, if you didn't support Hamas, you were killed. So who's going to be that heroic to outwardly run in an election against Hamas and then have your family killed. Nobody is from, certainly not me. So it's not their fault. You can't say they voted them in. So is it the fault of the government? Well, perhaps to the extent that governments are responsible and not the people, then it's the government's fault. And then the anger of the Gazans should be directed at their governments. And as we know, if you're not happy with your government, you overthrow it, either in the ballot box or whatever way is possible. But then, so you're left with, why is the focus of the anger on A, Israeli citizens and B, Jews like around the world? What did all the other Jews do other than by being born Jewish? So why attack them? So the anger is understandable but the the way the anger finds an outlet is not understandable. It is obviously, as all hatred and biases, irrational. And that's what I hope our listeners will appreciate. That it there's no cause and effect between Uh, the squalor under which the Gazans are forced to live, and have been for 30 years, and the state of Israel. And yes, the state of Israel recently built a barricade, but they built a barricade for protection, not to harm the Gazans. And if you're going to criticize Israel for building walls between Gaza and Israel... Then criticize Donald Trump for building a wall between Mexico and the U.S. It's utterly absurd. Countries ought to be able to protect their and control their borders, and that's what Israel did. Not for mean bad reasons, but to protect themselves. And self self-defense is acknowledged that every culture on earth to be a protected right and understandable. It is self-defense. So the barricades that Israel built in to control its borders is nothing other than what every other country on Earth did. And therefore, the anger is understandable, but misdirected. It's not directed at fixing the problem, only at hatred.
1: And as we've often seen with countries like this that have a tremendous amount of internal organizational turmoil, lack of freedoms, and those freedoms, uh, you know, go, go beyond simple uh, you know, ability to earn money, uh, educational opportunities. Uh, all of it. Um, it, it is easy oftentimes to set up a straw man and to create a distraction, a diversion, so to speak, uh, the the, uh, the proverbial red herring to lay the blame somewhere else. And Israel is a convenient historical target. It is convenient both geographically, it is convenient historically, it is convenient certainly from a, a religiosity standpoint. But at the end of the day, I think Bob Zadig has unveiled some very important issues here that we all need to be mindful of. Are there problems in the region? Absolutely. Are there reasons why the Palestinians have cause to be upset and frustrated? Absolutely. Is Israel necessarily the logical, responsible party? And I'm choosing my words wisely between the, logical, the, the, the the logical focus versus responsible. I think logical focus... Well, in terms of what we discussed today, it may be illogical, but it, it certainly is a predictable focus of anger and ire. But is it the accurate one? Is it the responsible one? I think as we've learned from our conversation today with Bob Zadek, the answer to that question is a resounding no. Bob Zadek online at BobZadek.com, B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. Six o'clock from KFAX.